I uh, got acquainted with Dave Selvig when he was on the search team that was looking for uh, a new lead pastor for this church. And uh, I found it fascinating because he's an engineer, but he's been an actor for a number of years. And that's what he does. He coaches and he acts. And I just didn't think engineering and acting had much in common, but they found, they found a happy home in Dave Selvig. Uh, the main thing that I've heard about Dave is that he is just steady. Is this true? Those of you who know Dave, he just long obedience in, in, the, uh, in the same direction kind of guy. And the other thing that you must know about Dave is that he is married to Joan Selvig. <laughs> right? That's uh, almost as amazing as but being married to Donna. You just have to say it. Uh, and, and the comment I want to make about Joan, I know Joan's not giving her story, but this is what I think about Joan. I'm going to embarrass her. I think she has the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. Okay, Dave, come on up. <laughs> Where are you? I think this was supposed to be Joan doing this. I'm substituting for her. <laughs> There's a shelf here somewhere. There we go. So, next Sunday is Super Bowl, and unfortunately, the Seahawks are not in it, uh, and neither is my other favorite team, the Green Bay Packers. Do we have any, any other Packer fans in here? <laughs> hey, there's quite a few. Yes. Yes, Green Bay Packers. Well... Until I was nine years old, we lived in Wisconsin, about 40 miles from Green Bay. And the fullback at that time, the Packers fullback, was Ted Fritch. Now, he had worked for my dad in the summers when he was going to college. So my dad took me to a Packers game. And then after the game, we went down outside the locker room to meet Ted Fritch. And he came out, and he reached in his pocket and gave me this orange that they got in the locker room after the game, oranges. He gave me this orange, and I'm sure I never ate that orange. <laughs> it, it, it just shriveled up to nothing. Uh, well, then we moved to Minnesota. And as I was growing up, I, I heard about Jesus in church and in Sunday school and in vacation Bible camp. And when I was 10 years old, I was given this Gideon New Testament. And then when I was 11, when I became 11, I became a Christian. And I signed and dated in the back my commitment to Jesus. And that's why I have kept this. It's very important to me. This past Christmas, I watched the movie, A Christmas Story. Have, how many of you have seen this movie? Most of you, I'm sure, have seen this. I watch it almost every Christmas. And it, the story takes place in the 1940s in the Midwest. And if you've seen the movie, you remember that nine-year-old Ralphie has a dream about the best Christmas gift any boy could ever have, a genuine Red Ryder 200-shot carbine air rifle. But his parents and others, including his school teacher and the department store Santa Claus, warn him that you'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I love this movie so much is because I was nine years old in the 1940s, living in the Midwest. And I, I remember the snowy, cold winters with snowsuit paralysis. 
Um, the, uh, the coal burning, smoky coal burning furnace, and the warnings against sticking your tongue on a frozen pump handle or a flagpole. I never did it, but I heard of people that did. Don't ever do it. And like Ralphie, I got a Red Rider air rifle for Christmas. I wasn't warned that I would shoot my eye out, but I was told to only shoot at targets, not birds and squirrels. Yes, the movie brings back a lot of, a lot of memories for me, including this one. One time, some of my friends came up with a plan to sneak into the movie theater without paying. And it was the Paradise Theater. It was the only movie theater in town. Now, this was their big plan. Imagine that you're sitting in the movie theater looking at the screen. And on both sides of the screen is an emergency exit with a curtain. Now, if you go through that curtain, you go down a hallway on either side, come around to the back to an emergency exit door uh, that only opens from the inside and has no alarm. I think you can probably guess where this is going. The plan was that one of us would be in the theater, and then when it got dark enough, he'd slip through the curtain, go down the hall, the others would be hiding outside by the exit door. He'd open the exit door, and the rest of us would come in. And then when it was dark enough, we'd slip through one by one into the theater. Well, that was the plan. Now, as I think back on it now, it, it, seems, it seems pretty silly. But at the time, it was a big deal for me because I had a problem. My conscience told me this was wrong. But I didn't dare tell my friends that because they would call me a chicken or worse, or like in the Christmas movie, I would get the triple dog Daria. So I came up with a plan of my own. I would tell my parents about it. And then, of course, they would say something like, you're going to do what? Are you crazy? No, you will not do that. That's what I was hoping they would say, because then that would give me an excuse to go back to my friends and say, oh, my, my parents found out about our plan, and they won't let me join you. Well, my parents were very wise, and they saw this as a teaching moment. Now, there are a couple places in the book of Colossians that we're studying where Paul says to teach each other with wisdom. And that's what my parents did. They said, we are not going to tell you, you can't do this. You are going to have to make the decision yourself on whether to do it or not. That is not what I wanted to hear. So my plan had failed. So finally, I had to go back to my friends and, and tell them, uh, this is wrong, and, and I, I, can't, I can't join you. To my surprise, my friend said, we've come to the same conclusion, and we don't want to do it either. <laughs> Looking back, my parents were very wise. See, I just wanted a simple rule to follow, uh, an easy way out. But instead, they gave me the freedom to choose what was right. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Colossians. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. I'll be reading uh, from Colossians chapter 2. verses 16 through 23 in the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, with whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which are all, all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much for that story. Um, again, my name is Peter, and we are going to continue in our series in the book of Colossians today. The title of today's sermon is Only Christ. And the basic thing that I want to talk about today is uh, what really is worthy uh, for us to be connected to. So that's the big question I want to ask. But the way I want to get at that is by talking about this one thing that I've experienced to be true and I think is a reputation that precedes the church and Christianity and religion in general. And it's this. And I just sort of learned this word in the year 2016. So this is a brand new word for me. Uh, but what I hear out there and experience myself also is that Christianity and religion have a reputation for being woo-woo. <laughs> Do you know what that word woo-woo means? Have you heard that word before? No? So it's a new word for you, 2017. Go. The immigrant is a year ahead of the uh, native-born. Nice. Um, but it sort of means it's kind of squishy. You know, it's not quite solid. It's a little bit elusive, and uh, it's a moving target of sorts. And this is what I hear about Christianity and religion in general. We delve into uh, things that are deemed to be mysterious or invisible or intangible or maybe even unprovable. You know, and that's what religion is. We talk about sort of higher level stuff on, um, uh, on the hierarchy of needs. So we don't talk about food as much. And shelter, we talk about like meaning of life and self-actualization. You know, and that's a little squishier, isn't it? It's kind of a, a moving target. And so that's what religion is. It's woo-woo. Uh, it's hard to prove. And because of that, there's a propensity for religion to be used to manipulate the vulnerable, to exploit the needy, and ultimately to control the masses. There's a kind of power we wield when we wield religion. It taps into human weakness. And we see this play out all throughout history. Religious leaders have been keenly aware of human weaknesses, and they have made up lots of rules and issued decrees and have created sort of a spirit of superstition among the people that religious leaders have had power over. And we see that clearly in history. And similar to this same trend, Judaism had devolved into, by the time Jesus was born, into hundreds of extra-biblical rules that no one could keep. Because some of these rules were highly contested. Some of these rules came from different competing uh, leaders within the circle. And different sects were birthed out of it with different rules. These rules self-contradicted each other. And there was no human being that can keep all of these rules. In fact, outside of the things that are stated in the Bible that they claim to base the rules on, there were over 600. 
hundred rules and regulations that any God-fearing Jew uh, were taught to keep. But that all depended on who you were talking with. There was uh, a lot of complexity there. And as a result of that, positions were created to help uh, stand for certain uh, philosophies or set, sets of rules. Different sects were born, different leaders, different positions were created. A system was erected. And the system was used by the leaders to oppress and control the masses. And if you ask the God-fearing Jew at that time which they found more oppressive, the, uh, the Jewish religious system or the Roman occupation, I don't know what they would say. They were both uh, very oppressive, and Jesus was born into such a time. And it's my observation that today nothing has changed that Christianity uh, is filled with rules. And if you talk to theologians and cultural anthropologists, they would tell you over 70% of what we consider to be Christianity is actually extra-biblical. It's not in the Bible. We just made up rules and customs and traditions uh, as a way to uh, try to support the religion, support the intangible, squishy, woo-woo beliefs and principles, we erected something a little bit more tangible, a way to be. Uh, but the truth is, Christians today, if we were to look at Christians 100 years ago, we would think they're not Christians at all. It's not that their faith is less real and ours is more real, but it's that we just have different rules than they used to have. And they're not obeying or even aware of the rules that we have today, sensibilities, right, around race and gender and lifestyle. It's all totally changed. Today, you might say, you can't be a Christian and own a slave. Well, they wouldn't say that 100 years ago. How would you judge that? They would say, you can't be married to somebody that's outside of your race and be a Christian at the same time. How would you look at that now? Doesn't it seem archaic and uninformed and ignorant and sort of just, who believes that? How can you get away with such contradictory beliefs? But back then, they just had different rules. And it's not just Christians or religion, but it's culture, because everybody has a religion. You know, so culture today, we have lots of rules. Uh, one thing I'm aware of, a rule, it's not a law, but it's a rule, is thought policing. We police each other's thoughts more than we ever did. You know, uh, I belong to Facebook, and uh, I have literally defriended people because I just can't stand the soapbox that Facebook has turned into, and I just don't want to hear it. I don't defriend them. I mute them. I don't want to see their stuff on my feed anymore, right? Or uh, I don't want to know what you had for lunch. I don't care. I don't want to see a picture of it. I don't want to know where you were. I don't want to know who you were with. Live your life. Go be happy without having to, you know, keep me posted. That's a rule. And use, using that, we police each other's thoughts. There's a rule about political correctness. I mean, God forbid you get branded as politically incorrect. It could be the end of your personal life. It could be the end of your company. That's how prevalent these rules are. Another rule is the rule of tolerance. We have to be tolerant of everything. What happens if you're labeled intolerant as a company or as a public leader of that company? You're in trouble. Somebody's going to tweet about, about you, and somebody else is going to retweet that tweet, and then it's going to get to the right people, and it's going to become viral, and you're out of business. Human sexuality, standards for social justice, the language that we use, eating and health habits and views. All of these things have rules associated with them in our culture today, and we live under the pressure, I might even say the oppression of these social norms, regulations, decrees, views, rules. Now, rules have a bad name, but actually rules initially start because uh, they are created to facilitate life. They're meant to be helpful, to grease the gears of our relationships, to inform us about how to be more compassionate, how to have generous assumptions about each other, how to be uh, 
introspective, you know, create awareness and social intelligence. That's why rules exist. But rules by rule, as a rule, always fall short eventually. And what we know is that rules start out as a way to uphold life. But eventually, every rule becomes oppressive and controlling and begins to strangle out life. Another way to say that is rules, rules are self-cannibalizing. They eat themselves up. Uh, Ravi Zacharias' uh, articulation of this principle is uh, rules are like a universal solvent. It cannot exist for very long. Think about a universal solvent. By definition, the solvent will dissolve the container that it's in. And then it will spill out, dissolve everything that it touches, and then eventually it will have to dissolve itself because it's universal. Right? That's what a rule is. Let me give you three examples of such cultural rules today. I mentioned tolerance. We know this to be the rule of the land these days. But do, do a sort of an intelligent Google search on this and you will begin to see an increasing, because you can date the articles that people are writing these entries, you can see that the rule of tolerance is beginning to cannibalize itself. So tolerance started out as a way uh, to help people. We want to be self-differentiated. We want to be able to relate to each other without being reactive or hateful towards each other. So we said, let's be tolerant. Let's, let's get along with each other. Let's figure out how not to uh, prematurely judge each other or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But now, after a while, because it's a universal solvent, it begins to oppress people. And it begins to also self-destruct. And here's how that happens. We begin to say, now, wait a minute. I can't be tolerant about everything. Some things are intolerable. And then you start making a list of things that you're not going to tolerate in your life. Like, for example, I'm not going to tolerate gluten, some people might say. I'm not going to tolerate sex trafficking, somebody else might say. But there are just things that you don't tolerate. And you begin to realize life is more complex than just tolerance. Tolerance as a rule... It's helpful sometimes. It's applicable and true sometimes. But a whole bunch of other times, it's insufficient to uphold the, all the weight and complexity of life. It doesn't apply every time. You can't have spouses and siblings using the rule of tolerance to get away with murder. You can't. A kid can't accuse mom of, hey, you're being intolerant, mom, of my behavior. And the mom says, damn straight, I'm being intolerant. <laughs> and that's right. It doesn't always hold water. It doesn't always apply. It's insufficient. Life is complex. Life is difficult. Life is challenging. It can't just be tolerance, right? And then you begin to see tolerance for what it is, that it's actually quite an oppressive rule because guess what? Tolerance is increasingly intolerant of intolerance. It's extremely judgmental and ungracious. It short circuits the process. Boom, you're labeled instantly, intolerant, demonized. Off with you. Get thee behind me. There's nothing more intolerant than tolerance, and it's self-cannibalizing. It can't even hold itself up. Do you see that? Okay, example number two, uh, this phrase, everything is relative. It starts out as helpful. It's a helpful social rule, right? We experience the truthfulness of this on a regular basis. Things are relative. Not all that glitters is gold all the time. True. True enough. It started out as a way to be helpful to life. But that statement is, turns out, is in, not a relative statement, but it's an absolute statement. Everything is relative is an absolute statement. It's beginning to eat itself already. And then you realize, you know, actually not everything is relative. Some things are binary. There's the law of non-contradiction. You can't be both A and B at the same time sometimes. 
It's either A or B. It's not A and B all the time. I like both and as, as, a, as a goal. It's a great ideal I strive for in my life. But lots of things are either or. Some things are absolute. And they need to be absolute. Third example. Uh, we live in post-post-modernity. Uh, Meaning that uh, things aren't just postmodern anymore, and the, the heartbeat, the thrust of postmodernity was everything is valid. Think about that rule everything is valid. And it was really helpful for a while, it gave voice to the minority. You didn't have to have power to be heard. You can be uh, just a nobody and have a blog or tweet or get on YouTube and have a voice. It's great. Postmodernity. Everyone is valid. Everything is valid. Every need is valid. Uh, turns out it's not true. Not everything is valid. Some things are less valid than other things. And then you realize that if everything is valid, then what? Nothing is valid. You can't just hear everything and think about everything and consider everything and still be a functioning human being. You have to make judgment calls about, you have to prioritize, you have to put things into a hierarchy of needs and urgency and priorities in your life. And so everything is not valid. It's beginning to cannibalize itself because then term validity has no meaning at all. So if everything is valid, nothing is valid. All right, so three examples of how rules start out to be helpful and how they often are helpful but they're not always helpful because rules, by definition, cannot uphold the full weight of life. And the question is, what can? The answer is on the board, class. <laughs> this one's an easy one. Everybody, everybody passes. It's only Christ. Everything is meant to fail. Nothing understands the complexity of life and nothing else has authored life and loves life and has died for life as only Jesus has done and so the passage tells us that he alone is the head that Christ is the only one who can actually be the ruler of our life and this is a testimony of the Christian faith that it's not rules that we need. Rules are oppressive eventually. Rules break down. You can't legislate all aspects of life perfectly. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law or the rules of, of the world. I didn't. I actually am the thing that all the rules have ever pointed to. The rules were just the means to me. And I am now here. Connect to me. Let me set you free. Let me be the fulfillment of every rule and law in the land starting in your heart. And let's emanate from the heart all that is true and lovely and beautiful. So here is my um, summarized passage. This is my redacted version of today's scripture. I want to read it for us. I took out some of the more tangential uh, things. So, uh, but the meaning is intact. Things are a mere shadow of what is to come. Okay, let me pause there. Everything is a shadow. Every rule is a mere shadow. Everything is shadow. But the substance belongs to Christ. The head from whom the entire body, that's us, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, that's rules, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees or rules? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, right? In self-made religion, that's just another word for culture, and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value compared to the surpassing value of Christ. Rules only find redemption at the foot of the cross. 
If rules are not acknowledged as an arrow or a metaphor or as an intention pointing to Christ, they are of no value. Your job, if you are claimed to be a Christian, is to take any rule and understand the rule's connection to Jesus. Because every rule's rule is to point to Christ. That's why rules exist. That's why God gave the law. Even when our culture creates rules like tolerance or relativity, that's an attempt. That's us feeling the broken image of God in us going, no, 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 no. I think deep, deep, deep somewhere we all instinctually know we're meant to somehow accept and love one another. I know this to be true. How can we find a way to articulate that? And then our culture comes up with this value of tolerance. It starts from that place of God's image in every human being. Without that image, there wouldn't be an impetus for us to even think about or imagine the concept of tolerance. It comes from the fact that we are created in God's image. And it's our attempt to recover that image. And so we create something called tolerance. But that's just a rule, a mere shadow, pointing to not just how to love, but the source of love that is Christ. And the idea of tolerance has to be brought under the lordship or the rulership of Christ for it to make sense, for it to be useful to human beings. But outside of the headship of Christ, every rule will fall short and you will see it unmasked for the oppressive master that it actually is. You know this. You've made rules. You have lots of rules. It's never about the rule. As my friend Rick says, rules are just placeholders. They're just ideas. We're just grasping in the dark. Just, I think there's something good in this general direction. Let me just write it down. Go this way and you will live. Now that's a rule. So we go there and then we bump into another wall that we couldn't see. But it's all coming from Christ. And it's all pointing to Christ at its best. The irony of Christianity is that Christ came to set us free from Christianity. He came to connect us directly to himself. He came to flatten the hierarchical religious structure to, to do away with priests. My job shouldn't exist in another hundred years. It shouldn't. You, should, you don't need people like me to tell you what God is saying because God gave you the Holy Spirit. And God gave you the Holy Spirit by cleansing you of your sins. The way he cleansed you was by having Jesus die for you. So now you are directly connected to God, the head who, according to Scripture, causes the growth. Do you know Christianity is extra-biblical? Christ is biblical. Christ is the whole point of the Bible. But Christianity, just like the Judaic laws, are meant to be done away with. Do you know we're not going to be Christians in heaven? We're just going to be. There is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female. There is no marriage or giving away in marriage, Jesus says, in heaven. Our bodies, we're going to be able to eat but not have to digest. We're going to be matter but walk through walls. It's just a whole other world we don't understand. Everything here is shadow. Lots of uh, examples of this uh, Jesus taught, and I think, you know, the reason, one of the reasons he was killed is because he was so anti-establishment in some ways. He really hated religion because it was oppressive to people. It had become just the junk drawer of rules. Not serving life, but strangling life. So he said, for example, if you want to follow me, I want you to hate your mother. That's what Jesus said. I want you to hate your father. I want you to hate your brother and your sister. I want you to hate your spouse. I want you to even hate yourself. And you have to hate them to follow me. Meaning that, you know, marriage is just a shadow. 
Your spouse isn't your end-all, be-all. Your spouse isn't meant to complete you. Your spouse isn't meant to be the love of your life. Your spouse is just a fellow struggler. And you have a certain proximity to your spouse. You get to walk with your spouse, but you're both headed somewhere else, not towards each other. Because the each other part, that's just a metaphor. At the best marriages are marriages that are just mere shadows and know it to be a mere shadow. Therefore, it's properly placed in your life and in your heart. You don't have crazy expectations for your spouse to complete you or to love you or rescue you or redeem you or to uh, dull pain in your life. They're not your escape mechanism. They're not your God. They're not your leader. They're just a metaphor. That's why Jesus said, if you ever have to choose, you got to choose me because I'm the ultimate reality. Your spouse, just a shadow, just an arrow. Same thing about church. You know church is a shadow? You know how you know this? Well, we know about marriage. There's no marriage in heaven, Jesus taught. There's also no church in heaven. No more Sunday service. All Seahawks, all day, every day. But church is a shadow. It's, a, it's an incomplete rule. Work, no work in heaven. Work is a shadow. Culture is a shadow. Friendships are shadows. Let friends be your friends, not less, not more. Release them from the grip of your needs. They can't meet them. Leaders are shadows. All the earthly loves you've ever had, even towards your child, mere shadows. Mere shadows. God said, can a mother forget the babe at her bosom? Yet even if she does, I will never forget you. Because even a mother's love for her baby, that most instinctual biological instinct to love your child, shadow, pointing to God's intense love for us. Stories and narratives and songs and poems that we hear, all shadows. The story underneath every story, the song underneath every song is about the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord who died for us. That's what every love song is about. It's not about the actual object of love. It's not about him or her. It's about Christ. All of our needs and longings and desires and hopes, all these point beyond itself to the thing to come that is Christ, pointing to the love that is to come, the security that is to come, the meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and the joy that is yet to come in Christ. I think an appropriate word here is freedom. Salvation is freedom. Why do we have rules? Why are we so... Uh, attracted to rules? Why does it help us to feel safer? I will tell you, because the relationship is broken. Well, which one? All of them. Because the law, rules, and relationships have an inverse relationship. So if you are tight and you're connected and you're intimate and there's high trust in your relationship, whichever relationship you're talking about, then there are no rules. But as soon as the relationship begins to break down, the number of rules start going up. I suddenly have a curfew. I suddenly have people I can't talk to because I'm not safe anymore, right? And then when there's total relational breakdown, who do you call? A lawyer to replace the relationship because there is no relationship. And I'm telling you, we have this penchant for rules. We're vulnerable because our most basic fundamental relationship with God is broken. And when Jesus and we get restored, every other relationship suddenly finds healing in some way, shape, or form. Every rule, every metaphor, every sign gets put in their proper place because they're all aligned, pointing to the same thing in your life. And that is Christ. Verse 18, powerful little passage says, let no one keep defrauding you. People are going to peddle rules at you as if the rule itself is life. It is not. A rule is pointing to Christ. 
Anybody know who this is? Who is that? That's Lori Lehman, our very own Lori Lehman. And she wrote a poem called Ignoring the Fear Not Angel. Okay? And she introduces this poem this way. This is my response to the fear-mongering and anxiety-producing culture we live in and how we ignore the angel who comes telling us to fear not. So she wrote a poem. She shared it with me. I begged for her permission to show this picture and to read her poem to you, which I'm going to do right now. Ignoring the fear not angel. This is really good, guys. Okay, ready? The terror, I had Lori read this to me in her voice so that I can know how she wants it read. So I'm going to try to uh, mimic her a little bit here, channel Lori here. The terrorists are coming. My identity is at risk. My passwords all need changing and the world seems adrift. On the street, there's road rage. I could fall and break a bone or a thief could come tonight and break into my home. My keyboard is so germy and my doorknobs need a wipe. I could run out of sunscreen or get lost while on a hike. The ladies' room, oh, what a risk, but one that must be taken. If I set my purse on the germy floor, do I need then to replace it? Ebola could be coming, plus the measles and the flu. The shingles and pneumonia could be headed this way too. Eating is so dangerous, the calories and fat, the sugar and the lactose, how much gluten is in that? What if it's undercooked? What if it's not organic? What if it has GMO? I'm also in a panic. Caffeine's a yes, no matter what, and chocolate will not go. This year, eggs are yes, I think, but next year, maybe no. I hear that juice and pop are out, but wine is A-OK. -okay. That's good because I need it just to keep my fears away. <laughs> I'm afraid to make a big mistake. What would people say? I'm afraid to face the future, and I'm struggling with today. And what of death and dying? Will I die with dignity? What if my friends discover there's a me they didn't see? This cannot continue. I can never catch a breath. There is no way to live. It is dying before death. I want to live a fearless life with God, my safety net, free, falling into joy and peace, never more to fret. That's good, right? That's good. <laughs> Thank you for applauding my reading, but how was the poem itself? <laughs> okay, verse 19. Holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Not all growth is from God. Often we think we're growing, but all that's happening is we're growing in our knowledge and arrogance about the rules. We know the rules of the game. We know what to say, what not to say, what to eat or what to want to eat. But we don't actually change from within. We're not maturing. We're not healing. People around us don't recognize the fruit of the Spirit. We don't see joy emanating from us. We're not growing from God. And I would say that lots of Christians are savvy and they know the rules of the game. They know the rules of the church. They know how to be at work. They know how to post on Facebook. They have it all dialed in. They know how to navigate all the rules of the land. But we're not growing on the inside because that growth is not from God. So this is my challenge to you. How do you grow in a way that's from God? How are you actually being transformed by the renewing of your mind? How are you being transformed into one who understands the supremacy of Christ in your life? God's will, God's will is that we be set free from the oppressive uh, strangulation of rules all around us that's put on us by the culture and by people, by systems and governments, and have only Christ as our center. And from that center emanate life from within. I don't think we can be salt and light unless there is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let me conclude uh, with two application points. 
Number one is I want to simply ask the question of you, why are you drawn to rules? Why do you get superstitious? What makes you vulnerable to rules in the first place? So that's just an open question for you. I answered it for myself. You can read my answer in the sermon notes if you look that up. Okay, second application point. I want to take this Sunday to acknowledge racial tensions in America. It's really, really high. And, you know, I could say nothing and it'd be a fine sermon and we can just move on. But let me just name it. I'm not going to offer opinions on it. Uh, But I want to acknowledge some truths about this country we call home. This country was started, founded by the explorers wreaking havoc on Native Americans. It started that way. That's a fact. That's a historical fact. So it started with racial tension. Okay, that's number one. Number two, shortly after that, we enslaved Africans and we institutionalized racism. That's an ugly fact of our American history. And then we went on to imprison Japanese Americans in internment camps. Only recently have we liberated women enough to vote, and they're still fighting to be seen as equal in our society today. And come to think of it, we've exploited and ridiculed every new ethnic group to ever set foot on American soil. The Irish, the Italians, the Polish, the Chinese, the Koreans let alone Native Americans and African Americans. Our American history has always had racial tension. But here's what I think. I think that's actually great news. And all these atrocities I just listed are the very reasons why my parents in 1981 decided, we got to go to America. You know why? Because the reason we have those tensions is because we have a vision. We have a founding history. We have an origin story right from the get-go of multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism. That's who we are as a country from day one. We started with a clash. And we've clashed ever since. And that gives me hope. Because it means we want to work it out. Let me tell you, it's really, really hard to be multi. You know, I visited Korea for the first time five years ago before starting work at this church. And it was my first time being there. And it was really monoethnic. Everybody were like at least six inches shorter than me somehow. I grew taller than my uh, kind. (laughs) And... Every person I saw, because Korean culture is this way, they called me fat. It's true. They all told me I was fat. And by their standards, I was. You know, I try to tell them it's muscles, but I didn't want to take my shirt off. I didn't want to make them feel, you know. So I let let it lie. But every single person I met was a racist in Korea. They don't have a vision for uh, ethnic, multi-ethnic society. They don't have racial tensions in Korea. That's why I like America. This is beautiful for me. In this room, about 30% non-whites today. I love that. I love that. To me, the reason the tension exists is because we have vision. There's an ideal that's pulling us forward. How can we get there unless we have to, uh, unless we work through the differences? We can't just ignore it. So I'm glad it's being brought out to the surface. That's how I feel as a non-white American. I do dream of a place where we can talk about racial issues. I fear for white people. I know Almost every white person I've talked to in private has shared with me they're afraid to speak because they know the rule of the land. You say one wrong thing and then you get labeled. You know, you'd rather be called a murderer than a racist, I know. But I heard this great phrase this week. If I can't talk, I can't learn. 
Susan David says that in her book, Emotional Agility, that I started reading this week. So I want us to talk about it. Where do we talk about it? Two practical application points for that. Number one is we have a sister church, a covenant church in Seattle over in Ballard called Quest Covenant Church. And on February 12th, that's a Sunday, from 1.30 to 4.30, and all the details are in my sermon notes if you want to go click on the link and register. It's free. They're going to have Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, an African-American woman professor who is a professor at uh, Seattle Pacific University here. She's going to partner with our superintendent, Greg E., to talk about race for three hours. And it's free, and you're all invited to come to that. And that's one way to get us to start talking and not feeling, not living shut up and shut down by the rules of the land. I think there has to be a safe place for us to just talk, just start talking without fear of label or judgment. The second thing I want to mention is just to create awareness for you is after the service, uh, there's going to be an annual reunion, a gathering of some of the 35 Southeast Asian refugee families that our church has sponsored and taught and befriended and loved, these are Joan Selvig's words, since the year 1980, a year before I came to the States. And that luncheon is happening upstairs. There's going to be an overflowing amount of delicious, amazing, amazing Asian food up there. None of you are invited, sorry to say. Uh, unless you were invited, I don't have the power to invite you. I'm not sure how that works, but uh, I'm going to be there, and I'm really excited uh, especially on this Sunday, to, uh, to be interacting with families that were refugees in 1980. I think that's really cool. Here's how I want to end the sermon. I want to tell you, remind all of us, that Jesus alone is worthy of being the head. That is to say, the ruler, the center, the standard, the end the meaning, the purpose for all of us. He is why we exist. Everything else, mere rules, mere signs, pointing to Christ. Jesus alone is our Savior and Redeemer and Ruler and Lover of our souls. Amen.